You're listening to And welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yuan. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here today to talk about our February 2024 book club pick, Untethered Sky, a novella by Fonda Lee. Um, as always, Books and Boba is supported by our listeners at patreon.com slash booksandboba, where our Patreon supporters get access to the Books and Boba official members-only Discord server, as well as special bonus podcast episodes. So if you've been enjoying Books and Boba and want to get more involved with the book club, um, head on over. Um, again, it's patreon.com slash booksandboba. And with that housekeeping out of the way, it's time to discuss our February 2024 book club pick, um, Untethered Sky by Fonda Lee, which, man, even though this was a novella and a shorter read, there's sure a lot packed into this book, huh? Yeah, I finished the book within uh, maybe like two and a half hours, but then I had to go reread the book again because I had listened to it on audiobook, and I don't know, maybe I was just not in the right mindset, but... um, I like missed a lot of key things. So I like bought the book in like Kindle form <laughs> and reread it. And I will say like the second time rereading it, it it like definitely helped. Yeah, I'm just so excited to read Fonda Lee again. Um, she's one of my favorite authors. She wrote um, The Greenbone Saga, Jade City, Jade War and Jade Legacy, which are some of my favorite books. And excited to see, you know, her use her uh, fantasy and world building chops to like write such a tight and exciting story. So um, before we get into our discussion of Untethered Sky, just a quick reminder that we will be discussing all aspects of the book. So um, if you haven't read the book yet and um, care about being spoiled, um, this is your cue to hit pause and finish the book before coming back. And like we mentioned, it's a relatively short book. Um, so we'll see you back here in like a couple hours. All right. So as always, we start with the book jacket description. So here we go. Esther's family was torn apart when a manticore killed her mother and baby brother, leaving her with nothing but her father's painful silence and a single overwhelming need to kill the monsters that took her family. Esther's path leads her to the King's Royal Muse, where the giant rocks of legend are flown to hunt manticores by their brave and dedicated ruckers. Paired with the fledgling rock named Zara, Esther finds purpose and acclaim by devoting herself to a calling that demands absolute sacrifice and a creature that will never return her love. The terrifying partnership between women and rock leads Esther not only on the Empire's most dangerous manticore hunt, but on a journey of perseverance and acceptance. Yeah, so it's been a while since we've read a novella, and... I'm still in awe of just how much story gets packed into like, you know, a novella that's longer than a short story, but shorter than a full novel. But I think it's a credit to Fonda Lee's um, just skills that she's able to pack so much world building um, into the book. And maybe it's because I like reading fantasy and am able to um, fill in the blanks. But she did a really good job of like dropping enough hints for us to be able to fill in those blanks as we like read along. What did you think? Uh, Yeah. So I was like looking at reviews uh, in preparation of this podcast and a common criticism that I've seen about the book is like it's too short. The world building, it's like not (laughs) as uh, it's not as like completely built as I thought. And I was like, well, it's a novella. And that's the thing about novellas. You 
Like you always want more. And that's a good sign of a novella because it means that you were invested in the characters, invested in the world. Obviously, you have a limited time to really get to the story, get to the character development, especially in a story like this, where it's like really focused on Esther's journey through like a number of years. So you really can't deviate too much to uh, go into side quests. <laughs> but um, I thought the novella was a really good length. I think uh, because it was so tight and so focused, um, it just like pulls you in. And in terms of like world building, because this is based on Persian mythology, in my head, I'm like, okay, Persian Empire. So <laughs> I didn't really have to fill in a lot of blanks in terms of like, what does the empire look like? What does the setting look like? What is the culture? Because I'm like, okay, Persian Empire, rocks and manticores are also part of like Middle East, West Asian mythology. So it was very easy for me to jump into the world. Yeah, and it's not like we're not growing up in empire today, right? We kind of get the sense of like, okay, these are the people in power. These are their values. Um, you get hints that even though women are allowed to become rookers and like hunt manticores, that it's still a very patriarchal society, right? Like Esther's family obviously prefers sons to daughters. Um, the generals of the empire um, obviously look down on women in, you know, non-traditional roles. So like those are things that you can pick up from like, Align. Yeah. And I was looking at the acknowledgments before we were starting this podcast. And uh, Fonda Lee says that she was inspired to write this book after she spent a week in Ireland with her family and they went on a guided hawk walk. And it made her <laughs> think about, like, you know, monster hunting and the bond between the trainer and the hawk. And I was like, oh, that's like really, like, that's, that's really interesting that just this one experience kind of like expanded into an entire manuscript. Yeah. And I wonder if Fondale is also secretly a Monster Hunter player. Because I definitely got like Monster Hunter vibes from from reading this book. Monster Hunter, like the anime or? The Capcom game. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, I'm not familiar with it too much. Okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's a series where you play as a Monster Hunter. And it's unique in that a lot of the game is all about preparation. Like you prepare, you hunt, you track and then you finally find your quarry. And I think I was able to map like the monster hunts in, in this book to like my experience playing Monster Hunter. Uh, so the book is split into four different parts. So uh, fledgling, hunter, captor, savior. And the first, uh, the first chapter, fledgling, it goes into Esther's background, like where she grew up and how she lost her mother and baby brother and how it set her on this path for vengeance. Yeah, so in this chapter, Esther is bonding or gets bonded to her rock, um, Zara, or Zahra. Excuse the Zahra. pronunciations. Yeah. We're, we're probably going to like flip-flop, <laughs> but you, you guys get the um, point. Yeah, so um, Esther is bonded with her fledgling rock, Zahra, and reminisces about, you know, her, why she wanted to become a, a rooker in the first place. And it, it goes back to uh, the trauma of losing her family to this giant creature, um, the manticore, which it's like a, it's a monster with the body of a lion and I guess in this world, the head of like an ape, right? Yeah, if you Google manticore, you'll see exactly what it looks like. <laughs> and if you've played like, I don't know, Final Fantasy games, you 
know you know what they look like. <laughs> yeah. Um, this version, though, I think in Final Fantasy, the manicores usually have wings. I think this version doesn't have wings. So they're, but they're, they're frightening creatures that get attracted by, like, human screams. And what did you think about the way that uh, Fonda depicted the manticore during this first attack? Or in general, like, I think she does a really good job just explaining how, like, how much fear these monsters strike into people, right? Yeah, I was really uh, captivated by the scene where her... Uh, where Esther's baby brother gets murdered and we're introduced to the manticore. Like she hears this, uh, Esther hears a sound, she goes back and she sees the manticore. She sees her baby brother's like clothes. Well, not even that. Um, she, during this flashback scene, she's talking about how, you know, everything changed when her baby brother was born um, because I guess, you know, she was the, the firstborn daughter, but because of like her mother having multiple miscarriages afterwards she was blamed for like ruining the family's chances of having like a son and then they got a son who was like super spoiled right so uh, i thought it was like it was kind of chilling the scene where basically the her baby brother is like annoying her so she like picks on him and he runs home screaming and then the screaming stops all of a sudden and that's what draws her attention right yeah. and that's when we see the man in core i think that was I, like, I, yeah i found the passage uh so at the manticore's feet was Arnon's embroidered red silk jacket. Inside the jacket, I knew in an instant of detached horror was Arnon. The manticore's black tongue snaked out and licked his face almost like a dog. Then it picked him up by his throat and stood, and my brother's body dangled limp from the manticore's jaws. The neck bent at an impossible angle, feet swinging just over the ground, one sandaled and one bare. And I'm like, that's quite a grisly image. And this is what I really liked about Fonda Lee's prose. Like, it is very sparse. It's very tight. But you, like, I don't know. It's so cinematic. Everything kind of feels like a camera shot where it's like, okay, focus on the jacket. And then you see, <laughs> and you see the baby brother. And, you, and then you see them in like an awkward, like, grisly angle and i'm like wow like you really feel the fear pumping through the prose yeah i mean this flashback does a really good job setting up um Astaire's character as someone who you know this tragedy becomes like a core memory for her and it makes sense why she dedicates her life to wanting to hunt these monsters and joining the rookers and you know we get a glimpse of what her family life um was like with her father um after tragedy and how things weren't the same between her and her father i mean i i do like the way fonda lee like depicted grief you know it's like neither one explicitly blamed each other but there was just like this fragile peace between them and you know you can still love someone but have that be have that love be filled with a lot of pain and grief so i thought she depicted that really well and of course like her father uh preferred sons and before her baby brother was born he kind of treated her like a son and uh gave her a lot of opportunities. So the relationship changed after her brother was born. So there has to be a little bit of resentment. So you get these hints from um, Esther and her father's relationship. And even though it's very complicated, um, you just kind of like piece things together from the sparse prose. Yeah. And I love how the training at, at the Royal Muse reminded me of 
like a lot of like middle grade books that I used to read, like Aragon, which is a, a book about like dragons. Like a lot of it did remind me of like dragon writer books where like the writer gets to like pick their dragon and obviously like you have to like foster a bond. And I like the fact that you get the sense that being a rooker is, you know, very deadly from the get-go because they're like, oh yeah, this this rock that we just catched, they might not like you and tear you apart. So good luck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we get an example of that with Dariush, who becomes Esther's partner who lost an arm while taming his rock, right? Like, I thought that was really cool that uh, one of our main characters uh, or, you know, main supporting characters is an amputee and who, like, is still a huge rock nerd. And I, I really loved his characterization as someone who just loves, like, he hyperfixates on rock and rock culture and rock society. I mean, it's his livelihood, so I, like, I have no judgment on his hyperfixation. It, it's kept him alive this this far. Um, yeah, but I, I love how you kind of see how es- uh, Esther uh, fosters her bond with uh, Zara because it's not it's not immediate, right? You have to like lure the rock with treats and you know they each have their own personality. It's <clears throat> it's not gonna be the same training the same way with different rocks yeah i I really like the fact that the rocks here are just wild animals right like it's not like how you train your dragon where you become friends with your familiar and like they like love you and you love them like zahra feels nothing for Astera. Astera is just someone who she is familiar with who gives her food and let takes her to places to hunt game um it's like not even like a cat right it's like taking care of like a feral like panther right someone who like will tolerate you but can also eat your face at any moment um i like that there's that tension there where zara is not a pet she is a bird of prey right yeah and it kind of reminds me of i guess like sea world and like orcas and their trainers like the trainer thinks that they're you know very close with the orcas and that the orcas like understand them until like some grievous accident happens where like the orca like attacks them and tries to like bite them in half and I'm like <laughs> wild animals are not your not your yeah, friends but- okay like you might love them but it's not like that bond is is like rooted in captivity so it's not an equal partnership yeah they're called um they're called killer whales for a reason right <laughs> um yeah and i mean what did you think about the whole like training montage right like it's about like sensory deprivation i love i love training <laughs> montages whenever like i watch like movies or animes i'm just like yes i love uh seeing how they get to like their final form and it, it was just like fascinating how um they train their rooks with like sensory deprivation because i know that's what they do with like hawk training and falcon training and i love how there is this fear that the rook like after they um are set free for like their first official hunt there's this risk that they're just going to fly away and never come back and just seeing like Esther's uh like anxiety over that i thought that was pretty palpable yeah so in the second chapter um hunter 
um, Esther goes out on her first manticore hunt, right, along with Dariush, um, and gets her first kill, essentially, or, or assist, right? She gets an assist, but she is awarded the kill um, of, like, her first manticore. Um, what did you think about this, like, hunt scene? I, I really love how um, Fonda depicted, like, all the, you know, preparations that need to be taken in order to hunt Manticore. Yeah, uh, they split into two teams, and Daryush and uh, Esther is put into one team, whereas, um, who who is it? Nashim? Nashim is like, yeah. Nazmin. Okay, like, hard time remembering characters, <laughs> like I said, uh, goldfish memory. Um, like, they go on their own path because there's two Manticores. Um, I thought it was really cool to see how they're tracking them it really is a hunt like if you think about how um people hunt with falcons it it was like very similar i do love how um the way they draw out the manticore is that the rookers actually have to use themselves as bait and they have to scream and you have a manticore chasing after them and i'm like I don't know if this is the best strategy, but it's the one that they came up with with, with their training. So um, you're putting your life in danger and hoping that your uh, co- wild animal companion will kill the monster that is trying to kill you. Yeah, and another thing that I appreciated was that Fonda also um, depicts the aftermath of the kill. And we see that, yeah, like these rocks are just snacking on their prey. Like they're just eating the flesh and brains of the manticore they just killed. I thought that was a really interesting touch just to remind us that like, these are still like wild animals and they're not killing just to hunt. They're also killing because it is in their nature to hunt and feed on monsters. I also thought it was pretty funny how um, like after they kill the manticore, they have to dismantle it, right? They have to uh, like cut out, they have to skin it and like cut out the organs and whatnot. And Darius is like, this like, so much work and i bet people don't like i bet people like will think that rookers are not like a glorious job after dealing with this i I mean i really love that this book was also like a stealth workplace drama like we're like following co-workers doing like the nitty-gritty of like their jobs right yeah so after astaire's first manticore kill there's this custom in the empire where the rooker is taken to the fire temple and they're celebrated as like a hero and uh Astaire goes with Nazmin to the city and yeah and you know they're accompanied by a prince right and <laughs> this is where i was wondering which direction this book was going to go because like so far it's just been kind of a workplace drama about hunting with giant birds and then but now you're getting a little a little splash of romance and i was like oh is this going to be like because i had already pegged Darush as like if there was going to be like a male lead that would that would be him, right? But now we're we're entering like second male territory. I'm kind of glad that subplot was quickly resolved. But uh, what did you think of when like Esther was showing attraction to the prince that was escorting them? Um, yeah, I, I like wondered if it was gonna go into like a romantic subplot, but I was actually quite relieved that um, Esther during the feast that celebrates her kill. Uh, she like wanders off to look for Nazmin and she finds her uh, kissing the prince. 
And afterward, Nazmin's like, yeah, like, this is a big opportunity for us to get, like, more money and to get, like, to recruit more uh, apprentices. So it's not just, like, it's not just, like, a fling. Nazmin is using politics. And Esther is just like, wow, like, she's, she's, like, a rooker and, like, a politician and a beautiful woman like i cannot be any of those things except for like being a rooker <laughs> yeah i mean and she feels a little jealous about it but i did love this part that like that's being essentially becomes like the rookers director of comms like she is now their pr um their their pr person going around um and like improving the social standing of rookers because we did see that you know in that first hunt People are people are afraid of rocks. They're afraid of rookers. They kind of view them all as monsters, right? So um, it was kind of cool to see, you know, throughout the next chapter, captor, uh, we see that like the her PR campaign along with the prince is paying off. Like the social standing for rookers has risen um, at the same time where their services are becoming more and more needed. Because another thing that we learned during um, the celebration banquet is that. The empire has been expanding. And as with all empires, they're starting to spread a little thin, right? And the frontiers are less protected against monsters who, um, like we mentioned, are attracted to human screams. And so um, I thought that was really interesting. Like it was kind of a subtle jab at like the insustainability of empire, um, as well as introducing us to one of the generals who like makes like super misogynistic comments. Yeah, and... And we're kind of seeing like the the I guess trade or the occupation of rookers get commercialized in a way because now they have like more outposts and there's like more outreach to get apprentices and they're putting more money into housing and also uh, armor so that people don't actually die if they fail in in their mission to bond with uh, with a rook so. It it did remind me of like just capitalism in general, and I'm like, oh, this is not sustainable. And because rocks are wild animals, it's like they're not going to follow the rules that humans have set for themselves. Like they could really care less about the politics and uh, like just the structure of of their trade. So. Um, when like the grand hunt happens and um, the rookers are saying, hey, like rocks are very unpredictable. Like some days they're like fickle and don't want to hunt, even though the conditions might be perfect. They're very territorial. Like there's too many, um, there's going to be too many soldiers and horses. That's probably going to be a sensory overload on our rocks so we need to fix this and pretty much the general's like it'll be fine and they got kind of have to find creative ways to like work together and i'm just like yeah that's that kind of sounds like corporate culture in a way but what did you think maybe not corporate culture but definitely like there, there will always be disconnect between like decision makers and the people doing the rank and file work. I mean, that's true in any organization that has become so large that you know you can have people making decisions who have no idea what the people in the field actually do. And we also see that like the people have kind of become more entitled, right? Like they, the while the profile of rookers and rocks as like monster hunters have risen, 
so has like people's expectation of them to like be able to protect or do their jobs, right? And you know, we see that um, like the common people because now they know of what rocks do are upset when they're not able to prevent attacks from happening, even though that's not like you know, rocks are sent in to hunt. But you can't predict where manticores will appear. And manticores are attacking because humans are encroaching into their territory, right? Um, so um, I don't know if I saw like the capitalism metaphor here, but the rookers are definitely used here as political tools and like propaganda. And it kind of reminds me of any situation where you do an occupation where people don't actually know what goes into it. Like, I feel like we experience this as creatives, right? Like um, the people in our lives who are outside of the creative fields think we're like doing like cool stuff all the time. But the truth is like a lot of creative work is like pretty tedious, right? Like a lot of my podcast producing is just editing ums out of the um, audio. Yeah, the Empire views uh, the Rooks as controllable beings, as tools. And the Rookers are like, no, these are living things and they make their own, you know, they have their own personalities. They make their own decisions. We can't fully control them. And when it comes to manticore hunts as well, the Empire celebrates the human, whereas the Rookers are like giving all of the credit to their rocks. So there is a disconnect there on um, how the rookers see their rooks versus how the civilians in the empire view yeah. them. And it's like, they both think they have like opposite notions of like what it means to have ownership. And the rookers are like, we can't <laughs> own them. It's just, they're not, um, there's there's a quote in the captor uh, chapter and it and it goes when you love a person you are expected to give them their freedom but when you love a monster you keep it caged a monster can't love you back so there's none of the guilt of a reciprocal relationship you you're already subjugated which like yeah so if that like, was applied to a yeah. person that would be a very toxic abusive relationship right <laughs> That would be a very abusive relationship. You would be like, like there are some red flags there. You better run. Yeah. Um, but because of this mismatch of expectations, um, the Empire, and specifically, I guess, the general and the army, decides to go on a great manticore hunt to secure the frontiers of the Empire to make it safe for their people to live, um, which essentially is just more expanding the empire, right? I mean, an empire will do what an empire does, right? And this leads us to the final chapter, Savior, um, which starts off with the hunt. And, you know, as we, anyone could have predicted from what we've read in the past, things don't go according to plan, right? Yeah, so during this chapter, during this hunt, we get our first big death, and it's the death of Minu, because Minu, Darisha's rock, um, they managed to capture a manticore, but uh, Nazmin's rook becomes territorial and attacks Minu. And it's the first time they're seeing rook-on-rook violence. And they're like, what is yeah. happening? I guess this is what happens when you try to put human constraints on wild <laughs> animals. Yeah, and it was like, it was such a tragic scene because like, it was immediately preceded by a very exciting chase, right? Like they're chasing down this manticore that attacked their unit's soldiers. And there was like a frantic communication between units. Like you're too close to another unit. Uh, call off your rock. No, you call off your rock. And, and this is where one of the, one of the, and I didn't realize this was like a Chekhov's gun moment, but like Fonda had been laying down the seeds of like, 
Nazmin's been too busy on her PR tour to train and hunt with her rock. And this comes back into play here where she is unable to call off her rock, who ends up fatally wounding Darius's rock, uh, Minu, and causing like great injury to Darius as well, right? He gets like smacked in the chest by a manticore, which ends up causing like grievous harm to Darius, who runs in to try to save Minu, uh, while also allowing the manticore that they were chasing to get away. Yeah, that was a really like horrific scene. And it was just drenched with grief and anger. You could really feel Darius's pain. And I'm like, wow, this is like really remarkable for a character that we did not spend like hundreds of pages with you know at this point it's around like page uh what like 120 so we're like that's like that's very impressive in terms of uh getting invested in a character and seeing how much they love like seeing how much they're in pain after seeing something that they love get ripped away from them yeah and i mean i was I was glad to see that he made it through his injuries. Um, but when he wakes up and learns that you know his rock has passed away, you can feel his grief that like his reason for getting up in the morning has disappeared. Yeah. I mean, it's Darius. He's like, this has been his life. He has been hyper fixated on uh, being a rooker. And also like Darius's relationship with Minu, it's, I feel like it is more tender and more personal compared to all of the other rookers that I've seen because he talks to her constantly in like this gentle voice and he treats Minu like like a person almost. Yeah. And so this leads us to the final, I guess, act of the book, which is Esther sets off alone to head back to... She's heading back to camp, right? She's heading back somewhere. She's either heading back towards her home or to the next, like, yeah. outpost. And along the way, workers. she runs into a village who they're so glad to see her because there was a Manticore sighting and they had sent out a request for a Rooker and did not expect them to respond so quickly. And Esther decides to take on the hunt because she figures that this is the Manticore that got away from their last battle. And, you know, they really screwed a lot of things up for her and her friends. So, you know, she wants to she wants closure in defeating it. And I really like how this encounter was like it's scripted as like a last boss fight. Right. Like Esther is alone in the woods with no support except her and her rock. And it's just her and the final bad. And I really love that. Um this this final battle begins with Zahra taking off into the air, but first taking a poop, right? Like Fondalee very, very specifically writes in that before this giant bird flies away, it takes a crap. Birds poop a lot. Their digestive system is, it, it's very different. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, and like the manticore is injured from the previous battle. And it, I thought it was really interesting at how the manticore is depicted like there's almost like a patheticness you know and astaire um at some point says the manticore was a monster but it was also an animal an animal in pain it needed to catch me it needed to eat and though it was natural for me to hate i didn't hate it I thought that was pretty powerful because this thing that killed her family and also ripped away uh, her best friend's um, purpose in life, she's still able to see, 
like some empathy, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Esther has always been, or yeah, I mean, Esther is depicted as someone who um, has a very grounded perception of what she's doing, right? Like she acknowledges many times throughout the book that what she is doing to Zahra is unnatural, right? Zahra herself is a wild animal and a monster in her own right. And she can see that both Zahra and the Manticore, they just want, they're just acting on instincts. They just want to do what's natural. And in the same way she is too, right? She is acting on her instinct to protect and also to like to survive, right? Because at this point it is do or die. Like either the Manticore dies or she dies. Yeah. And what happens is her chariot gets overturned. And uh, when Zara is eating the manticore, Esther finds out that the manticore was pregnant. And this is a very, like, unsettling image for as a reader. Because, <laughs> like, yeah, that, w- that was an animal that was just trying to feed its babies. And um, they had the right to live as well. So it kind of puts you in this moral quandary. Well, I mean, those babies would grow up to be man-eating manicores too. So probably I, like... <laughs> I know, but also it's just like, I don't know. It, it, it's just like, well, humans really destroy everything around them. Like, would they be attacking humans if the humans didn't encroach on their property? I don't know. Um, but Astaire is trapped underneath her chariot. She's unable to get out and she's unable to uh, call for Zara to help. And I thought that was really funny and also very sad. Yeah. I mean, it's when you, it's like, it reminds me of like playing, playing with like a cat, right? It's like, you want the cat to love you, but the cat doesn't care about you. And in the same way, Zara does not recognize that her rooker is in peril, right? Zara does not show concern like uh, a companion would because Zara is in her nature, a, a wild animal that yearns to be like is a wild animal without like those instincts, right? Like uh, you can see here that Zahra does not see Esther as like a master or a companion or even someone who deserves she to be needs. protected. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think at some point Esther says, "I, um, I need Zara more than Zara needs me," and that terrifies her. And her fruit. And her fear is coming to fruition at this point because it's like, yeah. I need, like, I'm going to die from dehydration or blood loss or something. And my companion is just munching on this manticore without a care in the world. At this point, I was like, is this what going to end with Zahra eating Esther? Because I was like, that would be an interesting way to end this story. Um, instead, what happens is a dude rock shows up and um, Zahra flies away to presumably mate with him, right? Yeah, I kind of guessed that this was going to happen when uh, Fonda introduced the fact that uh, the rookery, pretty much, uh, they only take female fledglings from... Um, rook nests because female rooks are bigger than male rooks and pretty much the rookery is a a nunnery for these rooks and (laughs) that's very unnatural you know because it's like they reach sexual maturity but they're but the opposite sex is not there so um when zara is in her natural environment and she sees a male rook for the first time her instinct tells her 
to like go with the male rook. And it was really sad to read Astaire's like inner monologue of just like begging Zara to stay with her, but at the same time knowing that she needs to like let Zara go because that is what her um that is what her natural instincts are that like she doesn't own Zara and this was a way to show that love to her being like you you can't like keep a cage if you love something let it go you know all of that jazz yeah yeah and you know she kind of goes through the same grief that Darius goes through which is like yeah, she's losing her her own reason for like living right like she spent so much time you know, raising and taking care of Zara that you know like without her there, it's like everything seems a little empty. But I did like that we didn't end on like a bummer note. Like she does not end up starving to death in the middle of the woods because she is eventually rescued by Darius, who was able to find her because he was able to see Zahra flying off with her new her new boyfriend. Um, and I did like that the story ends with both of them coming to terms and accepting that even though the rocks are gone, they're still rookers. And when they get back to their base, I assume that they'll be assigned to new rocks to to become their new hunting companions. Yeah, I'm guessing that's what happens. I, I can't imagine either of them giving up being a rooker. Um, Nazmin gives up being a rooker. She marries a wealthy spice uh, merchant and has children and has a life after uh, you know, That retiring. should have been my like clue that like, Zara, uh, that uh, Esther would survive because we know about what happens to other characters in the future. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it's written in in the past tense. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it, it was just like so typical of the Empire to be like, yeah, we want to keep the image of Rookers and Rocks the way, like in a good light. So we're not gonna mention to anyone that Nazmin's Rook killed yeah, another. That there rook. was a big like f up. <laughs> in the operation yeah i mean nazmi also had no choice because because of what happened to with between her rock and and darius's rock like she kind of lost all credibility as a rooker too right so she has no choice but to but to leave the service i mean it's a pretty painful breakup because it's like the like nazmin's rook lost like all trust pretty much all attachment to Nazmin. And I'm like, wow, well, your Ruck wasn't taken away from you by like a boyfriend Ruck or by death. Like they left. Yeah. They left you. And it's just another example of like, you know, rocks are, they're not pets, right? They're like, you have to maintain that relationship with them so that they'll, they will, you know, like, the training of a rock is essentially getting them to rely on you as someone who gives them food, right? <laughs> and that's honestly what all you are to them is just, you know, they, they don't imprint on you. They don't see you as a parent figure or a friend. Um, they just see you as like someone who, if you listen to them, you get food. I thought the ending was really good. I like, I, I have to say it's like one of the better endings that I've read in novellas overall and also in like fantasy 
Yeah, I, I like that the story was short and sweet and very focused on like it really succeeds as a fantasy story that paints like a vignette of like this profession, this fantasy profession in this in this fantasy world and the realities of what that entails. And I thought that was really it was really well done. I can see why some people would want more because obviously, you know, Fonda could have spent more time fleshing out the world, um, building the characters, like maybe giving us more perspectives, but it really didn't need more than that, right? Anything more than that would have been bonus, but the story itself was just so tightly executed that um, I'm fine with not getting more. Like, if anything, I just want more Fonda Lee stuff. Yeah, and I thought it was really sweet that the book is dedicated to Fonda Lee's dog. Uh, for Sasha, my writing companion and a very good dog. And the thing is, like, I'm not a pet owner, so I don't really relate to that bond people have with their uh, animal companions. But, um, like, I've seen people, like, go through grief after losing a pet, and I'm guessing that it's a very similar feeling. Um, And... Yeah, like I, I wonder for the people who have pets out there, how did you feel? <laughs> Do you also feel sad when your pet doesn't love you back? Do you question it? Like I, like <laughs> I'm genuinely curious. Like, do you? I, I mean, with dogs, I feel like it's different because I feel like dogs attach themselves to you a lot more personally. But with like cats and birds and uh, wilder animals as pets, I like. Do you? Do you guys wonder if your pet loves you back? Like, do they see you as a partner or do they just see you as a tool to to get their next meal? <laughs> well, with that, that'll do it for our discussion of Untethered Sky by Fonda Lee. Um, if you have any additional thoughts on the book or on our discussion, as always, please let us know in our Goodreads forums or in our Discord server if you are a Patreon supporter. Um, we always love to hear your thoughts about our discussions. Um, before we go, we do need to announce what our book club pick is for the month of March. Um, Rira, what are we reading this month? We are reading Welcome to the Hyunnam Dong Bookshop by Huang Borum and translated by Shanna Tan. So this book is about a Korean woman who is burnt out. She did everything she was supposed to do, go to school, marry a decent man, get a respectable job, and all of it fall, falls apart. So in a leap of faith, she abandons her old life, quits her career, divorces her husband, and uh, opens up a bookshop in a quaint neighborhood. And um, it's about, you know being burnt out and learning to live a slow life and i think this is something that all of us kind of fantasize about so it's gonna be a pretty cozy read yeah living the dream opening a bookstore in like a small town isn't that just all what we all want um looking forward to discussing this book with you all at the end of march Um, as always if you finish the book already and have thoughts to share please let us know on goodreads or on discord All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you so much for joining us for our discussion of Untethered Sky by Fonda Lee. And we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. 
Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Brian, did you go to Saturday school as a kid? I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well, at our podcast, Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know. And that's Asian American pop culture. Ada's a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at the pioneering films that have led us to today. 